series that we've been on in, um, in the book of Amos. And if you haven't uh, already turned, I uh, challenge you to turn to the um, uh, book of Amos. It's a small book, uh, hard to find, but some great challenges. And we'll be reading through Amos chapter 6, verses 8 to 14 in, in just a few moments. But I think as we've worked our way through so far uh, through the book of Amos, we see a people who are dearly loved by God. He knows how they live and he knows everything about them and yet he still loves them and he tries to lead them to over and over to what is right and what is good. And even when the people have completely turned their back on God and he, he warns them that the destruction is coming from the Assyrians and other armies if, if they don't turn to God. And we see in prophets like uh, Jeremiah as they, they warn and warn of the, uh, the judgment which is coming if the people don't turn back to God. In Amos, we see, likewise, God tries to lead the people back to what is right. And he says, even though I must punish you, I do so because I love you. Now, that's hard for some of us to hear. It's hard for some of us when we experience it. God sometimes punishes because he loves us. Because he wants to lead his people... He has dearly loved people to what is best. And we read last week about a complacent church, or what we called a, a couch potato church, one who's kind of sitting back and wreaking the benefits of all God's blessing, but not serving like we should be. And we're continuing on that really uh, in the remainder of chapter 6. By talking about a prideful or an arrogant church. Look with me in Amos chapter 6, beginning of verse 8. And it says this. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares. I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry out the body or the bodies out of the house to burn them and ask anyone who might be hiding there, is anyone else with you? And he says, no, then he will go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. The horses run up the rocky crags. Does one plow the sea with the oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Canaan by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lobar Hamath to the valley of Arabah. Let's just pray. Dear Heavenly God, we thank you for the precious gift of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you use it to, to challenge us as your church to be the people you want us to be. Whatever it is, Lord, that you want to speak to our individual hearts and lives, whatever it is you want to speak to our church, Lord, we pray that we allow your Holy Spirit to work in us. Change us to who you want us to be, Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, throughout this week as I've read through this passage about this prideful people of God, and I've thought about how he wants us to be versus how we often are uh, in being a prideful church or a, a prideful group of believers. I thought of the old phrase, pride, pride comes before a fall. Now this is originally actually from the, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18 that says, uh, I love the messages version, it says, first pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Well, this, as you know, is part of the series that we've been doing in the book of Amos. And we know that Israel is God's chosen people, His dearly loved people, who He's called and He's blessed, but He's blessed them for a purpose. And that is to share God with the other nations, to share God with all the other people, to lead them to Him. And yet, they have taken all of this blessing and they've taken all the, the protection and all of the, the ways God has blessed and led them and, and they've started to just sit back and, and not really serve and not really do what God has called them to do. But even more than that, they've started considering all of this blessing and all of these military conquests and all of the riches and glory that they have now as a kingdom they started thinking they've done that all on their own. And they've started to be a prideful people who started saying, look at all we've done. Look at all we've accomplished. And the Bible from Proverbs there reminds us that the pride that we have to look at ourselves so greatly often comes before a fall. The bigger the ego, the harder they fall. Warren Wearsby and uh, Lloyd Perry have a book on, on missionary, missionaries and their outreach. It's um, called uh, The Wycliffe Handbook of Preaching and Preachers. And they tell a story about Hudson Taylor, who was a great missionary to China. Uh, in fact, one of the most famous Christian missionaries uh, that we've ever had. And Hudson Taylor was once scheduled to preach at a large Presbyterian church here in, uh, down in Melbourne, Australia. And the moderator of this service introduced Taylor in uh, eloquent and, and flowing terms, uh, really lifting him up. And uh, he told the congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in his missionary work in China. And then he presented him as our most illustrious guest. Well, when Taylor came up to preach, he stood there, in silence for a moment. And then he opened his message by saying this, Dear friends, I am nothing but a little servant of the most illustrious master. Oh, how it serves us well as the people of God to have what a lot of country people would call, where I was raised, a good old helping of humble pie. We need to be brought down sometimes to realize that what we've accomplished or what has been accomplished through our life is not because of us. 
but it's because of God's blessing. It's because of God's guidance. We need to show humility in God's service. And we want to recognize, first of all, from the, the reading of today, beginning verse 8, that, that God's desire is humility. He desires us to be a people that, that is humble. Verse 8, it says, The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares this, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in him. I cannot stand the pride of the kingdom of Israel. The people who are meant to be God's people, directed by him, guided by him, led by him completely, have now started to think that they've done it all on their own. Now, the Bible is absolutely, it's just full of phrases about humility or about being humble. There, there are great passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, that says, Paul says, be completely humble, bearing with one another in love. Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourself. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Man often wants to, to have the, the trophy shelf and see all the certificates on the wall or, or the medals hung around our neck. We're at the time of this, you know, we're closing off the, the Olympics, and we've seen people standing on the stage, and, and we've heard... Those of you who've been watching that have heard the uh, the Australian national anthem many times as um, as we've racked up the the gold medals and um, and even for like for a country which is so small in population we have an outstanding number of of gold medal athletes or medal winning athletes in in, in fact I think uh, you can correct me later if I'm wrong but I I believe that. In this last in this this Olympics, um, Australia is, is top of the medal counts, not in total, but per capita, so to speak. So if um, if you look at the population and uh, the medal count, we're, we're right at the the top of the list. And we love to see those awards and we love to see those medals. Man just loves to see those as wow, you've made it. No, we love to see those accomplishments. Now, if you can think of your um, American movies, you've all seen kind of American high schools. And um, you, you, maybe you can imagine for a moment, you're walking down uh, a hallway and there's, there's the lockers that they all go to and the, uh, the breaks and everyone's getting their stuff out of the lockers. Well, in every American high school, there's kind of a hallway full of lockers and all the high schoolers are getting their stuff out of the lockers. There's also a hallway or two or three hallways full of trophy cases. And uh, you walk down through this, uh, the halls of accomplishment, so to speak, in the, in the high school. And high schools often pride themselves on, on the um, sporting championships and the academic championships and uh, whatever that might be. There's trophy after trophy after trophy from each of the schools and, and often what each of the, um, the students have accomplished. We like to, to see those sort of things that says, wow, look at all I've done. What God wants to see, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trophies, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with medal counts, it's all wonderful stuff, and we should honor our athletes, we should honor those who have done well. But what God desires from His people more than anything is a humble heart. 
He doesn't care how many, how many uh, medals you have. He doesn't care how many trophies are in the case. He doesn't care how many certificates are on the wall in your office. God cares about the humility in your heart. And the moment Christians take our eyes off of God and start thinking that we've made it on our own is the day that we start to fall. When a church starts to take its focus off of Jesus and we advertise the, the, the fun activities and the programs we do or, or we brag about the numbers of people that we have coming along to our church and all the things that we have done but we don't acknowledge Jesus and we, we don't make Him the focus of all that we do then really, essentially, we stop being a church. We're no better then than any other club or, or social group out there. But we have to recognize as a church that there is power in the God that we serve. This is a God who changes hearts. It's a God who, who, who heals lives. It's a God who heals sickness and gives everlasting life to any who will trust in Him, even those who don't deserve it, which is like us. God gives grace and mercy. God is a God of power and of justice. And we have to keep Him as our focus. We have to recognize that, that the blessing we have and the provisions we have is because of God's blessing. It's because of His guidance. It's because of His provision. And nothing, nothing comes to us that's not through Him. God wants us to be humble. And God wants us to be able to mention His name. Now, verse 9 and 10 is, is an odd passage in which um, it, it talks about the, um, the grotesque nature of, of war. And uh, here in verse 9 and 10 it says, If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, Is anyone else with you? And he says, No. And he wants to go on to say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. Now, I say this is some of the grotesque nature of war because this is the idea that someone may have escaped some of the military conquests of the Assyrians. But the whole city will be left in such utter desolation that they too will die. And one of the things that often followed these Middle Eastern wars, the Eastern wars in the time of, uh, of Amos. What happened after the, the, the military came through and conquered the city and destroyed uh, everything around was the plague would come in and kill off, as a disease, kill off anyone that was left. It says if there's a family member who, who maybe visited and came in and started to, to carry off the bodies of those that had been infected or those who've been killed, to dispose of them as he, as he should. And he happens to find someone that's still hiding in the house that says, and he says, is there anyone with you? He would say, well, be quiet. But we can't mention the name of the Lord. Now the first thing a good Jew would do if he was finding someone who had survived all of this war and conquest and someone who had survived the disease that follows is he would say, thanks be to God. Praise God, you're alive. We've all seen images of, of terrible uh, natural disasters or, or even terrible um, man-made disasters where people who are working through the, the rubble 
that's left of the town. And they finally, they hear a voice or they see someone has survived. And they say, praise God, someone is alive. But he said, that person who is found alive would say to those, hold on, don't say God's name. Because he's so afraid. He's so afraid of the judgment which is coming. He's so afraid of the, the Assyrian army which has wiped out their city. God wants us to be able to say his name. Now, I say that to say this. In the Bible times especially, there was great significance in a name. Now, have you ever looked up the the meaning of names? Many of you, maybe when you were were searching for um, baby names, you've looked up uh, the the meaning of names. Some mean beautiful things, don't they? And some names just mean weird things, don't they? And some of you have looked through maybe baby books and you're going, oh, that's nice, Isn't isn't that sweet? And some of you go, we're not naming him this, or we're not naming her this, because... I don't know, maybe the name means the horse's tail or something like that. Yeah? And you look it up and you're like, look, it's a beautiful name, but we're not naming him that because we're not going to have him called that his whole life. Now, I remember uh, when we were, Lindy and I were trying to decide um, Abby's name. Now, each of the names have significance, but I remember especially when we were looking through, and um, this is my, my firstborn, and I was so excited about having this, this little girl, and we found this name which is Abigail, which means her father's joy. And I thought, that's it. This is beautiful. And, um, you know, it, like each of the names have significance. My name, which I think is the most, um, most far away from the truth, Michael means he who's like the Lord. Now, maybe that's appropriate on, on a sermon about pride. And I would have to say, <laughs> I, I'm pretty far away from that. But Michael, in, in the Bible time, Michael is the archangel of God. He is the one who's like kind of the right-hand man of God, his main servant. Michael, who's like the Lord. There was great significance in the Hebrew tradition of names. Abram, Abram, before God changed his name, Abram means a father. But God said, you're going to be the father of many nations, and God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many. Now, Abram had never had a child. He never, he wasn't, his wife wasn't able to have a child. And God says, no, you're going to have children, and, and even in your old age, I'm going to bless you with this. And so I'm changing your name to Abraham, which means the father of many. And Abraham became the father of all of the nation of Israel. There's great significance in, in a name. A name for the people of Israel represented what you were meant to be, what you were called to be. It meant who, which family you belonged to or even who you served. There are people even still today, especially in the eastern parts of the world, who, who will choose a, a Christian name like, uh, like Paul or, or James from the Bible, which says to the community, we are a Christian family, which says to, to a, a, a group that, that is in another religious sort of community we are a christian family there's significance in a name and and israel was known as being the people of god they called out god's name everyone knew these are those god people these are the people who are all about god they they call out his name and they praise him for this and they praise him for that they say everything happens because of god 
They're all the time talking about this God that they serve. These are the God people. And here, Israel had become so high and mighty, so stuck on themselves, so prideful. And they've been told that they will be destroyed because of this pride. They'll be told, they've been told that they'll be destroyed because of the way they're living. They refuse to believe it. And even when the destruction comes on them, they've come to a place where they can't even mention the name of God. They've become a people who is so ashamed and so afraid now that they can't mention His name. After this destruction of the house of Assyrians, where only a few were, were left in hiding, they'd come to a place where they were afraid and they were ashamed of the name of God. God wants us as His church to be a people of His name. And He wants us, not just in our churches, He wants us when we're at when we're at the Haven doing some shopping, when you're, uh, when you're down in, at your work, when you're at the park, God wants us to be known as the God people. He wants us to have such a life that it shows people that we belong to God, that we have humbled ourselves as God's servants, and He's alive in us, that God has changed us, and He wants people to be drawn to Him by the way we're living. Israel were that, that sort of people. They were the God people. They were known by His name, and yet they had forgotten God. They thought that they'd done it all on their own. God brought so, so much punishment that they had become ashamed and afraid of His name. Oh, how far they had fallen. I pray as a church, we never forget who has blessed us. We never forget who has saved us. We never forget... Who it is has called us and is leading us. We are God's church. We are God's people. Help us. God, help us to humble ourselves and realize whose we are. May all of our lives proclaim that Jesus is Lord of our lives. So we need to recognize that God's punishment here is for the whole kingdom of Israel. Now this is significant because... Israel didn't see it that way. We, we mentioned in the last few weeks that all of this judgment they knew was coming. It had been talked about by, by other prophets, Hosea and Jeremiah and, and um, Amos and others had said, this destruction is coming if you don't follow God, if you don't turn from your ways. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he called out that the people are going to be punished and they're going to be destroyed if they don't turn. And then he had to witness that destruction. And he survived some of the destruction in Israel and he saw the armies coming in and he saw the people of God falling. And he cried out, first of all, on behalf of his people, God, God have mercy. He cried out then to the people, people, please change your heart, change your ways so that these things don't have to happen. And then he ended up crying out because the people wouldn't listen. They wouldn't turn to God. And they were wiped down. They were destroyed. They were humbled. Over and over throughout Amos, we see where the prophet Amos is saying, this is, this is what's going to happen. 
the destruction is, is imminent now. There's nothing you can do to, to change it because you have turned so far away from God. You've been prideful and you've been unjust. You've gone away from God's ways. This is what's going to happen. And the people in Israel just kind of said, yeah, okay, whatever. We are the great Israel. We are God's dearly loved people. Look at, the pro- look at what we've accomplished. Look at the lands that we've, conquested, that we've conquered. Look at the, the kingdoms that we built. Look at the palaces we have. We are Israel. Look at us. This will never happen to us. But there's, um, there's significance in these passages where it says you, you, all, you all will fall. Verse 11 says, For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Now, this may not sound that significant, but it is significant to the people of Israel who considered the large part of the kingdom of Israel, Israel itself, the nation of Israel, a large uh, body of land, a large group of people. They considered themselves to be the, the great and mighty Israel who could never be destroyed. And the smaller bit of land, the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, considered themselves a prideful people and look at all they've accomplished and they thought Israel may be destroyed but we never will be and he says to the people of Israel who would have known exactly what he's talking about this great house of Israel strong and mighty as it may be will be crushed by God because of what you've done this small house that you're so proud of this small little group in Judah that that you dearly love with cities like like Jerusalem and others will be wiped out and overcome all of the kingdom of Israel will pay the price for turning away from God. Why? Because you've done the ridiculous. You, be, you are people who's meant to be just, and yet you've, you've taken that and used it, for, used it for injustice. You've taken the, the courts, and you've invited people into the courts to find out how to live and how to, to do what's right and how to be just, and then you've used that system You've used your government and you use your judicial systems to punish those who have come to you for help. And it says in verses 12 to 14, you, you've turned justice into poison. You've been unjust in your courts and in your government. You've also been unjust in a way that you treat other people. It says you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You've turned something which is supposed to be sweet and delicious into something that's bitter and harsh. As you know, I grew up on a farm, and I remember um, on this farm we had, uh, we had grape vines, and we had, uh, it's a small farm, but we had some grape vines, and we had cherry trees, and we had some apple trees, uh, and we had a peach tree, and uh, you could kind of walk along and pick this fruit. And, and I don't know if you've, if you've lived on a farm or you've been around these fruit trees. They're pretty hard to resist. Now, you have to wait on things. Like, say, the cherries, you've got to wait on them to get ripe, right? That makes sense. And, and as the cherries aren't, aren't red and ripe yet, you, you don't want to pick them. You don't want to eat them. But you have to also be cautious not to wait too long because if you don't pick them when they're ripe... The birds will, and they'll help themselves to the cherries. And, and likewise with other fruits, the apples, you've got to wait for them to be just right. And when they're right, they look wonderful. They look inviting. 
But if you wait too long, they drop from the trees and they rot on the ground. Now, I remember growing up, and uh, I, I didn't know how all this worked with fruit. I was just a young boy. And I remember growing up seeing this, this little green apple on the tree. And I thought, oh, man, that looks good. And I climbed to this tree, and I grabbed this apple, and I bit into this apple. And, man, what looked inviting, what looked sweet and delicious, was disgusting. It was the most bitter thing. It was sour apple. And I remember throwing it to the ground and feeling sick to my stomach that I'd eaten this thing, which was enticing and beautiful, but was bitter. It was not right. It was not as it should be. Now, the people of Israel have become like that. They, in the way they're treating one another, the fruit of righteousness, in treating people the right way, the fruit that comes out of that, which should be wonderful and sweet and should be gracious and wonderful, you've turned into bitterness. And it says, in a sense, you've done the ridiculous. Like It says, do you grab a horse and try to ride it straight up the side of a rock? Do you plow the sea with oxen? No. That would just be ridiculous to these people who are a farming community. He said, no, no, there's no way we do this. Then why have you turned justice into poison? Why have you turned righteousness into bitterness? You've done the unthinkable. And the people who are supposed to be God's people have gone so far away from him. Have become a people just for themselves. You think that you've done it on your own. They say in verses 12 to 14, didn't we take this city? Didn't we accomplish all of these things by our own strength? Well, the resounding answer in Amos here is no. It is God who blesses. It is God who heals. It is God who restores. And he does so in order that we might be a blessing to others. He blesses so that we can bless others. He provides for us. He resources us so that we can provide for and resource others. Not in pride or selfishness to hold, hold things in our own hands or not so we can build up our trophy cases or, or hang more certificates on the wall. God doesn't bless us so that we can store all of those resources and all those things in a large bank account or in a vault somewhere. God blesses His people so you can be a blessing to others. God gifts you with different things so you can use that for His honor and glory. God calls us to work together and He gives us everything we need and everything we need in the people to accomplish what He's called us to do. But it's useless if we don't use it. It's worthless if we don't use it. God calls us to realize that what He has blessed us with is not about us but all about Him. What he has given us, he has given us for a purpose. And he wants us to stop being a prideful people. Stop saying, look at us. Aren't we wonderful? Look at how God has blessed us. Or sorry, look at what we have done for ourselves. Look at the kingdom we built up. Look at how things are going well at our church. Look at, uh, look at the, the worship team or look at the facilities God has blessed us with. Look at the ministries that are happening. Look at all the people who are coming. Look at the children that we're, we're ministering to. Aren't we great? And it may sound ridiculous, but oh, how many churches, how many churches are destroyed by pride? How many churches, they keep on bringing in the people and they keep on having the programs, but they stop really being a church. They stop being 
a people who are surrendered to God. And they might as well, they might as well just close the doors. Because God is not working in them. God is not working through them. If you want to see God change in your life, if you want to see God improve your marriage, if you want to see God bless people in our community, if you want to see God provide healing and strength to those in our community, then we have to be a people who recognize that it's not about us. It's all about God. We have to be a people who are humble and surrender to Him and saying, God, we don't want to ever have a program in our church that's not about you. We want to surrender things to you. We don't want to have a ministry that's not about you. We don't want to have a worship time where we're singing the songs and we're not meaning it with our hearts. We want to be people who are surrendered completely to you because, God, we are nothing without you. It is you who does the ministry. It is you who does the healing. It is you who blesses our, our lives. It is you who resources us with these great things and has called us to serve together. God, help us. As your church, help us to humble ourselves before you, that you might lift us up, that you might make your church great, that you be honored and glorified, that it not be about us, that it not be about any individual, but that you receive all the honor and the glory and the praise in how we are being the church. Let's just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for who you are. God, you are to be honored and praised for you're so worthy. And Lord, forever we just want to lift you up. We want to sing your praises. We want to live out those praises. God, you are with us and you are faithful and you are strong. Help us, God, to humble ourselves before you and your mighty hand. That you might lift us up into who you want us to be that you might minister to, through us in ways that you want to, that you might be honored and glorified, Lord, through all that we do, through the songs that we sing, through the messages that we bring, through the ministries and activities of the church, God, help us to lift you up, that you draw people to you, that you provide the healing, that you provide the strength, that you restore and heal as we just surrender to you. Help us, Lord, to, to recognize that it's not about us. It's all about you, our great God. And give you all the honor and the glory and the praise and the thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.